before continue on with our study of the blessed hope which is the doctrine of the rapture and we will uh, be in verses uh, 16 17 and 18 and probably we will not get all the way through the end of the chapter today going through this there is a lot of scripture to tie in a lot of scripture that will help us understand this doctrine better and will help us uh, get more of a blessing out of it so I don't want to cheat uh, our ability to an opportunity to understand and apply these things better so we'll probably take this in two more chunks before we get into chapter five Uh, let's go ahead and read the verses 16 17 and 18 and then we'll open in a word of prayer first thessalonians 4 16 for the lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of god and the dead in christ shall rise first Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage, Lord, and there's so much here. It's easy to gloss over these things. They're uh, somewhat familiar verses, but I pray that you would help us, Lord, to really grab a hold of what you're saying here in these verses. Help us, Lord, to take it to heart, we ask. We thank you for the fact that you're coming again, Lord, and we're grateful that we're saved uh, by faith and not by our works, and neither we kept by our works, and neither are we fully redeemed at the end by our works, Lord, but rather everything is in your power and in your timing and uh, by your grace, and we thank you for that. We pray that you would help us this morning to understand, in Jesus' name, amen. First of all, we see Christ's confirmation. That's where we're at in the next step of uh, your student book. In verses uh, 16 and 17, Christ's confirmation. And my two sub-points that I have under that, if you're taking notes, would be this confirmation is from deity, first of all, that we see in verse 16. And then we see that this confirmation is authoritative. Uh, And those are the two sub-points under verse 16 that we have uh, this morning, verses 16 and 17. But like I said, we'll probably take that in two different chunks. But let's consider, first of all, that this confirmation is from deity. Paul says, the Lord says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. And there's an emphasis on the fact that Christ is Lord, that Christ is God. And because of that, we should be looking for this event, this sudden event that could take it happen or could happen at any moment. Uh, this doctrine is not something that is just tradition. If you Wikipedia or Google or look up, the rapture, I love the way they always say it is a, a belief held by some Christians that this will take place. And I always just laugh to myself, y'all have no idea. You know, y'all have no idea. The Lord himself is the one that created this doctrine that made it. Paul says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. This is not the tradition of the, uh, the Catholic church that broke off from true Christianity back in the early church father days. And this is not something that we as Uh, crazy fundamental Baptists have derived of our own understanding. Now, this is the word of the Lord, and there's an emphasis on the deity of Christ. One of my favorite passages, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, if you want to turn there, I love how the Holy Spirit of God takes the doctrine of the rapture, blends it with the deity of Jesus Christ, and then combines those two things into a command for us to be looking. And that One verse, really there's two verses there, kind of combines all of these ideas that we have been throwing around. Um, But Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Looking 
expectantly waiting for. Actually, let's back up to verse 12 if we could. Um, there, I think we're going to get a better, uh, more full context of what is being said there. Titus chapter 2, verse 12, teaching us, well, let's back up to verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, shooting down any concept that uh, it's all under grace, right? I can do what I want because it's all under grace. Right there, boy, that shoots it down. Looking for, expectantly watching, eagerly awaiting, pros decamai, the idea of looking for something and expecting to receive it. The same type of wording we find in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, uh, right, where we are told that uh, we look from heaven. We look waiting for Jesus to come from heaven. And waiting to expectantly receive from him the things that he would have for us. But looking for that blessed hope, which is the doctrine of what we would call the rapture. And then I believe this is talking about the actual uh, second return of Christ. But that's really neither here nor there. Because it says, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And that's not saying that there's two different persons coming. If you look at that phrase in the Greek text, if you were to open your Greek New Testament, you would find that the Holy Spirit of God lumped the name of Jesus Christ and connected it with the name of God under a single article. And when the Greek language does that, it is ascribing the attributes and the qualities and the essence of the noun to which the article is related. It ascribes it to whatever noun follows when it's connected with a simple conjunction. And that's exactly what that setup is. So this is a tremendous verse. And it's not the only place it appears. I believe it also appears in First Peter. But this is a tremendous place to be reminded that Jesus is God. And because of that, uh, we have this confirmation, not of men, not of tradition, but of deity itself. And so I can expectantly look for and expectantly await the things that God has for me. I love Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. And we've looked at this verse before, but I think we'll visit it again. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation or our uh, polituma, our politics, we've talked about before, our citizenship, our commonwealth would be a good way to say that. For our commonwealth is in heaven from whence also we look. Uh, That is the idea of expectantly awaiting, watching eagerly looking for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a little bit of a different uh, spin on the verb decamai to receive, but it's the same idea. It's the same concept. And so I have this confirmation from deity, and because of that, I can eagerly await it. Look at uh, Jude, verse 21. Jude, verse 21. One more place as we consider the confirmation, this uh, confirmation from deity. And my ability to uh, hopefully and faithfully expect something because it's from God. We're told in verse 20, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy, there's the idea of expectantly awaiting. Same verb, same idea. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. 
And then, of course, as you and I do that, what's one way we do that? Well, the verse goes on and it tells us, and of some have compassion, making a difference, spreading that gospel, spreading that hope, and others save with fear, warning of that impending judgment. Hey, if you're not in Christ, hell awaits. Putting them, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. And so the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, a confirmation from deity. And in that I find hope, I find assurance, I find peace, and I find um, great comfort. That's why Paul says at the end, wherefore comfort one another with these words. But not only is this confirmation from deity, this confirmation is also authoritative. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. That is the idea of a summons, uh, but not just any summons, the idea of an authoritative command. Matthew 8.18 and numerous other places you will find this verb translated command. And it's the idea of a military commander giving a shout or a command of motivation to his troops. Uh, One lexicon put it this way, it might be the idea of how a hunter would urge on his hounds or... um, You can tell by that illustration that lexicon was probably written some time ago, perhaps even in an English setting. But uh, it's the idea of of something being urged on by something. And so this is uh, the picture, the word picture is our heavenly commander gives us a shout. Perhaps it will be something like, come up here, Revelation chapter 4. One reason we believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture And we'll examine this more fully at the end of this study. But you see the church mentioned, you see the church rebuked, you see the church rewarded, and you see the church comforted. And then God says uh, to John in in Revelation 4, come up hither or come up here. I have things I want to show you. And then after that, you don't see or hear of the church again. Okay, Um, But we'll examine that more fully. And so maybe that's what the Lord's going to say. Come up here with an authoritative shout and summons. But it's going to be accompanied by the voice of the archangel. Who is this? Is it Michael? He's spoken of as the prince of the people of Israel in uh, Daniel chapter 12. Uh, Is it Gabriel? We have no idea. It really isn't important. If the Lord wanted us to know for sure the name of the angel, he would have given it to us. But regardless, it will be accompanied, this authoritative shout will be accompanied by the voice of the archangel. And it will be accompanied with uh, the trump of God. I, I never read this verse again the same. Uh, somebody ruined it for me to some degree. Uh, a crazy uh, professing Christian was uh, back when President Trump came into office. Was uh, talking about how uh, this is going to be the salvation of America. And uh, they, they applied this first, the trump of God. And uh, I was like, Whoa. And alive. Are you talking about taking something out of context? <clears throat> wow. But uh, we shouldn't let things like that ruin these kinds of verses for us. The Lord's return will be accompanied by all three of these things. You know what I love about this? This event uh, that is sudden, right? Not necessarily soon, but sudden. This event will take place with absolutely zero amount of input from me or you. And it will, this serves to remind me just how uh, powerless I am to either save myself, keep myself, or redeem myself. 
And as we examine all of these things, we don't find anything in here that would place any emphasis upon the work of man to participate in his salvation, to participate in his sanctification. Now, understand, I will come back and explain what I mean by that, lest you think I say we don't have to do anything. But the idea is, you know, I don't see anywhere in here where God needs my help to make any of this happen. Right? All God wants from me or from you is a humble heart and a willingness to believe. That's all he asks for, right? The Lord is delighted with the sacrifices of a broken heart. A broken and a contrite spirit, O God, thou wilt not despise. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a meek and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the what? The contrite, or the idea is crushed, the crushed ones. And so all God wants from me or from you is that humble heart of belief. And the rest, he takes care of, because I have absolutely no power to save myself. Now, when I say I have no power to sanctify myself, uh, I don't. I submit to what the Holy Spirit wants to do through me, and I choose to say no to my flesh and to say yes to the things of the Spirit. That is my level of participation. But my good works don't make me sanctified. You know, we teach little children right actions. We should be, right? And we teach them, you be nice to your brother or you be nice to your sister. And in their immaturity, there's this concept that, well, I was nice to you, and so that made me good for the day. Or my mom wanted me to be nice to you, and so I was. But it's not really from here, right? But you've got to start somewhere. Right? I mean, you've got to start somewhere, and you've got to teach them over time. It's got to come from here. But initially, they have no concept of that. And it's just, well, I did a nice thing for you. Now I can punch you in the face. Like, you know, I checked, that, I checked that off my list. And that's the way a lot of immature believers think. Well, I'm sanctified by doing something. So I come to church, or I give my money, or I try to be a nice neighbor. But it's not really coming from here. They just want that list that you can check, okay? That's what I'm saying when I say we don't have any part in our sanctification, because that's a wrong view. No, God works through us, and we submit to what he wants to do through us. And instead of being nice to somebody because I have to, now I'm nice to somebody because God wants to through me. And I submit to that, and I partake of that, and I joy in that. Okay. And so the Lord is... It's his work to save me, his work to, to sanctify me, and it's his work to keep me, and it's his work to fully redeem me. Now, this is where we're going to spend a little time, and I don't want to blow through this. And this is why I'm thinking we'll probably just divide this up into two different areas here. But as we consider this uh, confirmation to be authoritative, authoritative the Lord says, uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so I thought, well, this is a good time to really stop and examine what are the dead in Christ? Um, I've had people ask, well, you know, when will the Old Testament saints be raised? Will, will they participate in this rapture event? Uh, how will all that play out? Well, I don't have all the answers, but the Bible has many, many interesting things to say on that subject. So let's examine what it has to say. The dead in Christ is a New Testament term with which you are all familiar. I understand I'm preaching to the choir on many of these things. But dead in Christ is a New Testament term. We don't find that in the Old Testament. Okay? And so the Bible would seem to differentiate between the rapture event 
And the idea of only New Testament saints being involved in that, or shall I say post-church saints being involved in that, those who have been saved uh, through belief in Christ after the beginning of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2. You see this language used throughout the Pauline epistles throughout the New Testament, but you don't find it in the Old Testament. Now, you do find um, the Old Testament speaking of a future resurrection. You do find in Jesus' day, remember the Gospels are a New Testament account of an Old Testament economy. Okay, so don't confuse that. Don't go to the Gospels and look for the doctrine of the church there, or you will be confused and misinterpret many things. Okay, that's how you arrive at a mid-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture or all these other uh, wrong ideas. So if we look at, if we consider, okay, well, the Bible does talk about uh, resurrections in the Old Testament, but what is the context around those things? All right, so let's consider this. Uh, A very familiar one, Job 19, 25 through 26. You can turn there if you'd like. Let's have a little sword drill today, and we'll just go to these passages. Not trying to insult your intelligence. I know many of these passages you are familiar with, but there's nothing like giving deference to the Word of God and turning in it and learning to use it. So we will do that. Job chapter 19, verse 25. Job 19, 25, and 26. And hey, and if you're not familiar with these passages, then this is your time to make that happen. So one of the oldest accounts that we have of an Old Testament saint mentioning a resurrection. Okay? For I know, Job says, in the middle of his troubles, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin, you got to read this right, or you could end up calling it skin worms, okay? (laughs) And though after my skin, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now be careful, because when you read some commentaries or you read some uh, lexical accounts of this passage, there are some unbelieving higher learning Bible scholars who would say, well, there's no way Job could have had any concept of the coming kingdom of Christ. Therefore, he's talking about deliverance from his present troubles. Beware, okay? This book is read through eyes of faith. It's not a normal book. It's supernatural. We read it by faith. We interpret it by faith. And without that, we will be totally lost and arrive at false conclusions. So just be careful. I throw that out there. So Job says, hey, I'm looking forward to a day not only where my soul be redeemed, but my flesh will be redeemed as well. And I will look at my maker, my redeemer, face to face. Isaiah 26. Now, Isaiah chapter 26, I've mentioned this before. In fact, I've given this passage, I think, in in Sunday school. It's one of my favorite. But I didn't mention the context necessarily of Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26 is very millennial in context and we have time so I think we'll just start at Isaiah 26 verse 1 in that day now we don't have time to back up through all previous 25 chapters so let me just tell you that he's talking about in the day when God redeems Israel in the day when God brings his kingdom into into power okay you just have to trust me on that read it yourself when you get home in that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Think about how there will be righteous nations in the millennial kingdom who will come to the kingdom of Christ to worship him. 
And those who do not come, according to Zechariah 14, upon them will be plagues, right? According to the land of Egypt, he predicts that. Thou wilt keep him in perfect, in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in Jehovah forever, for in Yah Jehovah, the Lord Jehovah, is everlasting strength. For he bringeth down them that dwell on high, the lofty city, he layeth it low, he layeth it low, even to the ground, he bringeth it even to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The way of the just is uprightness. Thou most upright dost weigh the path of the just. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Think about how Christ's reign will bring that righteousness and the knowledge of that righteousness to every corner of the earth. And then he talks about people who will not change. Because even in the millennial kingdom, there will be those who will not accept Christ and will be the recipients of his wrath at the end. They will be recruits of the devil, as mentioned in Revelation, even after the millennial kingdom. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when my hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they, sh when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us, for thou hast wrought all our works in us. O Lord, our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead. They shall not live. They are deceased. They shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Israel has been scattered. Lord, we've had other kings. We've had Gentiles reign over us. Nothing's worked so far. We've been scattered for our sins. Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them, speaking of the God-fearing of Israel, like as a woman with child, and he uses an, uh, a hyperbole here, he uses an illustration uh, that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain, and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We've been in, uh, we've had birth pains, spiritual birth pains. Hezekiah uses the exact same language when he talks about his vain attempts to deliver himself from the king of Assyria. He says, Lord, we've, we've done nothing. We've been with, as with child. Uh, Isaiah will use similar language at the end when he talks about the sudden redemption of Israel. And he says, we, we, we travailed. Before we travailed, we brought forth. Before we, we cried, we, we brought forth a multitude. That's how fast the salvation of Israel will be at the end of the coming of Christ. But he says, we've been with child. We've been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Has Israel really redeemed themselves? Look at them to this day. Yeah, God's still protecting them, but have they really done anything to redeem themselves or destroy their enemies or really truly bring upon themselves the blessing of God? The answer is no. But then Isaiah looks ahead and he says, Thy dead men shall live. 
Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs. There's a freshness to it. Thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And then God says, and I believe he's speaking of the tribulation period and the wrath that will come upon Israel at that time. He says, come, my people, into my chambers. Enter thou into thy chambers. Shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. You think the Old Testament saints were looking forward to a, a resurrection? Oh, I believe they were. But remember what we're on. We're not, I don't want to rabbit trail too much. We're trying to discern the difference between the dead in Christ and the resurrection of Old Testament saints and how that will play out. Ezekiel 34 is another place looking forward to the resurrection of Old Testament saints. When the Bible makes plain sense, seek, when the Bible makes plain sense and common sense, seek no other sense, right? So we're going to read Ezekiel 34, verses 20 through 24, and I believe what it says, okay? I'm not going to allegorize this because it fits perfectly with more other things that Ezekiel is going to tell us in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and the lean cattle, between the lean cattle. He's talking about between the wicked uh, oppressors of Israel, the wicked rulers, and those who are oppressed by them. Because ye have thrust with side and with shoulder, and have pushed all the diseased with your horns, till ye have scattered them abroad. Therefore, will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. And you find David mentioned more than once in the book of Ezekiel. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, and I the Lord, their God, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David a king. Uh uh-uh, uh, he doesn't call him a king, he says a prince among them. Uh, who's the king in the millennial kingdom? Christ. Okay, he's the branch. He's the priest-prophet combination we read about in Zechariah. He will be the king. But you do read about a prince in Ezekiel 40 through 48 when it talks about the millennial temple, the temple that will be built. It talks about a prince worshiping at the east gate, bringing memorial sacrifices unto God. It never calls him a king. It always calls him a prince. But the Bible does indicate that he is a ruler and a leader of the people in context. I believe it's David. I believe he gives us that answer right there. Regardless, we're looking for, David was looking for a resurrection. And though he was primarily speaking of Christ in Psalm 16, don't think it had zero application to himself when he said, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Yeah, that's ultimately speaking of Christ. But he could apply that to himself as well in a much smaller sense and say, Hey, I'm looking forward to the same thing because my Redeemer liveth. And I shall behold him at the latter day upon the earth. Uh, Daniel, oh, what a place to go for a resurrection. Daniel chapter 12. This is the best chapter of all, in my opinion. I love this chapter. Daniel chapter 12. Again, the context is speaking of the end times. It, is, uh, it picks up at the tribulation period. We're nearing the end of the tribulation period. The horrors of the great tribulation have just been described to us in Daniel 11, 46 through the end of the chapter. Prior to that, it was talking about the tribulation type through Antiochus Epiphanes who was a type or was a type of the Antichrist okay. but now we are definitely in a millennial context and God says to Daniel and at that time at that end time event 
Shall Michael stand up? That's not Christ. Some have interpreted that as Christ. Christ isn't. He is uh, the king. He is for Israel. But this is Michael the archangel, I believe. The warrior angel of God. Michael stand up. The great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. You can read about that time of trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30 where God calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Thank you. And so this is the tribulation period. At that time, thy people shall be delivered every one that shall be found written in the book. Okay. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 24, 25 when he talks about him coming again the sheep being on his right, the goats being on his left, the sheep inheriting the kingdom prepared for thee of thy father, enter thou into thy kingdom, uh, prepared for thee by the father. And he says to the goats, depart from me, I never knew you, you that work iniquity. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. Now that is what I believe, we're going to look at this in a minute, but Revelation 20 talks about a first resurrection. And that's where I believe the Old Testament saints will be resurrected along with the tribulation saints. And, and, and I understand I am open to learn on this. This is not, nobody has the corner on this subject. Okay? This is a deep, difficult subject that we're not given a ton of information on. There's a lot of theories. Okay? But I'm not asking you to accept my theories. We're just reading the scriptures and trying to draw logical conclusions. So there's some are going to wake to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Although the Bible doesn't call it a second resurrection, it does mention another resurrection after the first resurrection, a resurrection you don't want to be a part of, where all the dead, small and great, stand before the great white throne of God. So, there is a resurrection of Old Testament saints. But everything we have read, and oh, by the way, back up to Daniel 12, and look what the angel says to Daniel at the end of the chapter. He says, but go thou thy way till the end be. For thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Okay? Remember, the New Old Testament saints had no concept of the church age, really. They didn't understand the rapture. That doctrine was revealed as Paul declared. For this we declare unto you by the word of the Lord. That wasn't declared till after Paul came on the scene, the church came on the scene, and God began to unravel this revelation to them. But the Old Testament saints looked forward to a, a redemption that took place somewhere near the kingdom of Christ. In fact, Jesus in John, if you want to go there, this will be our last example. Jesus in the book of John uh, monopolized on the, the fact that, these, uh, that the Jews of his day understood this. And so he declares to them some things concerning a future redemption. And he speaks of it freely in the context of they knew what he was talking about. He didn't have to explain himself because they were looking forward to a future resurrection. John chapter 5. Look at verse 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Okay. Well, the rapture is only for those who are into resurrection of life. So we know that probably he's not speaking of that, besides the doctrine of the church hadn't been developed yet. 
But we do know, according to Daniel, that it was common knowledge that there was a resurrection unto life and one unto damnation. Um, and then look at the language that Martha uses with him in Martha chapter, or Martha chapter 11, and John chapter 11, verse 24. Her brother Lazarus has just died. She is pleading for the Lord's help. She goes to him seeking comfort. She says to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. The last day, using the terminology of Old Testament times, considering the coming kingdom of Christ. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Great witnessing passage, by the way. And so he doesn't debate with her at all or have to explain anything to her about the resurrection. She already knew that something was coming. So, are there two different resurrections? I believe there are. Now, let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. Let's kind of wrap this up as we consider this authoritative command calling the dead in Christ out of their graves. Calling the dead in Christ out of their graves. But Revelation chapter 20. This is definitely speaking of the kingdom of Christ. We'll begin in verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season, which, by the way, he will go out and gather enemies as the sand of the sea, for one last final assault, remember what we read in Isaiah, let, wicked, let righteousness be shown to the wicked, yet will he not learn favor, right? And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was uh, given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. These are likely tribulation saints who were persecuted and died for the cause of Christ during that time. And for the word of God, in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, you say, well, there's no Old Testament saints specifically named there. He's talking primarily about tribulation saints. Well, I would agree with you. But Daniel said, I'm looking forward to a resurrection, basically, in the last day. Martha said, I know that he shall rise at the last day. God told the Jewish unbelieving crowd, uh, many shall come from the east and from the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. All right, and we'll eat at the supper, and we'll eat at my table, indicating that they'll have a body that they can consume food with. Okay? We have numerous Old Testament saints saying, I'm looking forward to a last day. Plenty of contexts that indicate in the Old Testament there's a last day. And so it would seem that all those things would be put together into this passage, and that God will raise Old Testament tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation period as the kingdom is opened up for those that trust Christ. So regardless, you have the rapture of the church, those who are died in Christ, God fully redeeming his children in that age. You have 
the resurrection of tribulation saints, God fully redeeming his children who died in the tribulation age. And then you have the promised resurrection of the Old Testament probably taking place at the same time where God will fully redeem and take care of those who died in that age. Regardless of which age you look at, the confirmation is from Christ. It's authoritative and he has it covered. Okay? And we rejoice in this blessed hope. So I think we will, well, we have to, we're out of time. We'll stop there and we'll come back with the Lord's help next week and we will examine uh, verses 17 and 18. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the promise of the resurrection. What a great hope it is. We don't really understand it, Lord. Uh, We can't really wrap our minds around how it will take place or uh, with what body we shall come. We don't want to dabble in those things lest we be found fools like the false teachers in the church of Corinth. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to just rejoice in these promises and may they drive us to more holy living, we ask. We thank you for your goodness. Pray that you would minister to the heart of everyone watching and listening this morning and that you would meet the needs as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.